You know that thing that just gives life and gives meaning and something that's just so magical and mystical that we all want the in-group. You know what I'm talking about. It started in middle school, didn't it? That, that in-group, maybe you called them the mean girls. I don't know what your, your name for them was. The popular kids, they kind of decided who was in, who was out, how we talked, what we wore. I mean, they just kind of decided everything. It starts there in seventh, eighth grade. And you think, well, you know, we kind of grow past that, but we, we really don't. I mean, there's teacher's pets and there's the coach's favorites. You know, when our kid doesn't make the team or first string, we say it was politics. No, that's just the in-group, another word for it. And then we go on to college and there's an in-sorority. There's an in-fraternity. There's a, an elite organization or club there on campus. And finally, we leave that. We're going to go to work. We've got all this childhood stuff behind us. We get to work and what's there? An inner circle. I mean, you just can't get away from this. There is always an in-group. And we want to be in the in-group. Oh, it gives us so much worth. It tells us that we're okay. You know, there are some, I don't need no in-group. Yeah, they're just the ones who got burned in eighth grade and still haven't gotten over it. Anyway, we want to, we want to be inside the in-group. But, but there is something. I mean, the in-group's small, isn't it? I mean, so it kind of means a lot of us are not going to experience the in-group. And so there's a little bit of a sting that comes with that. Some of us maybe feel some rejection, maybe still have some scars from that. So it kind of blows us away when we hear the idea that what, God? God has an in-group? Man, think of that in-group. Think of their swagger. They're just a little bit better than everybody. Does God's in-group have a swagger? We're going to look at that this morning in Romans chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, I hope you'll use one of ours there in the chair in front of you as we study this great chapter or open yours up there to Romans 11. We're continuing in our study uh, of this great letter. We're, today we're going to conclude a major section. Uh, we've been in chapters 9 through 11. And in this section, we've been answering the question, what happened to the Jews? You remember, Jesus is the, the Jewish Messiah. Jesus is the fulfillment of Jewish promises. And as Jesus ascends back into heaven and leaves this thing behind that we call the church, man, it's an entirely Jewish operation. But as the years become a decade, and the decade becomes several decades, by the time we get to the writing of this letter to the Romans, what was an entirely Jewish operation had become almost an entirely Gentile operation. Growth among the Jews, acceptance of Jesus among the Jews had kind of stalled. And yet this thing was exploding in the Gentile world. And so with kind of historically what was happening, people were beginning to ask, hey, are the, are the Jews out? Are, are they on the outside of the group now? Does God still have a plan for them? Did, did they do something to undo God's promises? That's kind of an important question, right? Because we're recipients of God's promises. Can I, can we do something to undo those promises? And so these are the questions that Paul is taking on as he enters chapters 9 through 11. In chapter 9, he assures us, in every chapter, he clearly assures us God is not done with the Jews. In chapter 9, he said that by saying, hey, listen, God chose, God elected the Jews. He chose a group of people. Folks, God beginning something guarantees that God's going to finish something. That's, that's not just good news for the Jews. That's good news for you and me too, isn't it? 
Man, God's begun something in my life. God's doing something in my life. And there is a guarantee, there is a promise that God's going to finish that. Now, in these chapters, as we see what God is doing in the Jews, what He's doing in the Gentiles, what He's doing in people, folks, ultimately God's plan is that we know Him, that God is revealed and we see Him for who He is and we see that He's a God of justice and a God of mercy. Now, all of the world, all of us are deserving of God's justice. We're we're deserving of, of judgment. We're deserving of condemnation. And when God does that, He is showing that He's a just God. Now, I don't know about you. I don't want to receive condemnation. I don't want to receive judgment. But if I did, God would be just. And we do want a just, righteous, holy God. So God will use some people to reveal His justice. But then God's also got another group that He's going to reveal His mercy. With this group, I'll show that I can forgive. I'll show my mercy and my kindness. He'll show that in that group. But now that is a select group. That is a small group. Another word for that is it's an in-group. My gosh, now all of a sudden we're back in eighth grade, aren't we? Oh no, I mean, how do I get in the in-group? I mean, do I have to be popular enough, smart enough, good-looking enough? What, what, what is God doing? Why would God do that? And what we see then as we turn to chapter 10 is that while God chooses a group and chooses whom He's going to reveal His mercy through, we see in chapter 10 that there's also an open invitation. Everyone can choose to be in the group. God chooses, but everyone has the choice to be in the group. Now, you know, we can't add that up, can we? That's a difficult math. God chooses, but we have a choice I mean, which one is it? That sounds like a contradiction. We talked about that when we walked through both 9 and 10. You and I can't put that together. We can't do the math on that. But praise God, He's not limited by our math. He's not limited by what you and I can put together, by what we can understand. And so in God's economy, in God's power, He can do it. He can create a situation where He's choosing But at the same time, you and I have an open invitation. We have a free choice to respond. And so now we come to chapter 11. And God is going to kind of put an exclamation mark on this concept, this idea that he's not done with the Jews. But in doing that, he's also going to show the Jews are on the outside right now. That means you and I are in the inside. We're in the in group. I mean, think about that. Our group is the strongest Our group is the richest. Our group lasts forever. Our group has the king of all kings. Now that'll give you some swagger, won't it? I mean, you talk about walking down the hallway knowing you're a part of the end group. That'll make you feel just a little bit above everybody else. Can we do that? What's the swagger of God's end group? Let's look at this this morning. Romans chapter 11, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. Romans chapter 11, verse 1. It says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the Elijah section? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets, torn down your altars, and I am the only one left. And now they're trying to take my life. But what was God's reply to him? I have left 7,000 men for myself who've not bowed down to Baal. In the same way then, there is also at the present time a remnant. That's a smaller group, right? That's an in-group. There is a remnant chosen by how good-looking they are. 
There's a remnant chosen by how rich they are. There's a remnant chosen by how popular. No, look what it says there. There's a remnant chosen by grace. It doesn't actually have anything to do with them. Verse 6. Now, if by grace, then it's not by works. It's not by their character. It's not by their attributes. It's not by what they bring to the table. No, otherwise grace ceases to be grace. Well, what then? Israel did not find what it was looking for, but the elect did find it. The rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that cannot see and ears that cannot hear to this day. And let me drop down to verse 11. I ask then, have they stumbled so as to fall? Absolutely not. On the contrary, by their stumbling, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. Now, if their stumblings bring riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full number? Hold, hold that phrase in line, in mind, their full number. How much more will their full number bring? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles in view of the fact that I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. If I can somehow make my own people jealous and save some of them, for if their being rejected is world reconciliation, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, if the first fruits offered up are holy, so is the whole batch. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now, if some of the branches were broken off and you, though a wild olive branch, were grafted in among them and have come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree, do not brag that you are better than those branches. But if you do brag... You do not sustain the root, but the root sustains you. Well, then you will say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Jews were broken off so that I could become a part of the in group, is what he's saying there. True, verse 20, true enough, they were broken off by their unbelief, but you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Therefore, consider God's kindness and severity. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness toward you if you remain in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Verse 25, So that you will not be conceited, brothers, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. A partial hardening has come to Israel, and look at that phrase again, until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now Paul starts off the chapter the same way he did in the other two chapters, making it very, very clear. There's not a lot of interpretation. You don't need me to explain this. Is God done with the Jews? Is, is God finished with the Jews? What's he say? Absolutely not. God still has a plan for the Jews. I don't know about you, but even though the subject is Jews, that gives hope and security to me too, right? I mean, just like they were God's people, I'm God's people now by the blood of Christ. Folks, man's failure is not God's failure. Man's unfaithfulness is not God's unfaithfulness. And though they failed, he will remain faithful. Though I might fail, God will remain faithful. So that's good news that he very clearly answers that. But then he goes on really in, in verses 1 to 7 and then in, in uh, 8 to 14, giving us two reasons to make it clear why God is not done with the Jews. And the first thing he says is, well, first of all, God's not done with the Jews because God's still working with the Jews. God has a remnant. Hey, time out here. I'm a Jew. 
I mean, that what he says in verse 2? How can be God done be done with the Jews? I'm one. God still has a plan for me. God's still working in me. Now, we might hear that. We might respond to that and say, well, yeah, but you're one person, Paul. I mean, we're talking about a whole, a whole nation here. Does God having a plan for one purpose count for being faithful to the whole nation? And Paul's answer in the verses up to verse 7 that follow are, yes. God being faithful to one, God being faithful to a minority counts for him still having a plan, counts for him still being faithful. And he reminds them of Elijah. Now, Elijah was a prophet to Israel during a time when when there was a great apostasy in Israel. I mean, they had turned from the Lord, rebelled from the Lord. I mean, from Elijah's perspective, there's nobody that believes but me. I'm the only believer in the whole nation. And he kind of cries about that to God. And God says, hey, Elijah, get over yourself. I've got 7,000 men that have not bowed the knee to, to false gods. I've got a remnant. And he's saying there, I will always have a remnant. I will always hold. I will select a group that I show my mercy to, to, that I will fulfill those promises to, that I will be faithful to. It may not be a majority. It may not be the majority of the nation, but there will always be a remnant that he will show himself faithful You know, when I think about Paul saying that, and and again, the subject here is clearly Jews. But as we're talking about being in the in group, kind of what Paul's saying here is, don't take the title of a group to mean you're okay. Don't take the fact that you're a part of a big group to mean that you're okay. I mean, as he's writing these Jews, couldn't there be Jews who would say, well, now, now, wait a minute, I... You know, I'm a Jew. I was born in Israel. I was born to Jewish parents. I was born into the Jewish faith. I'm in the good. I'm a part of the group. And Paul would say, no, you're you're not in the good. The group has rejected the Messiah. The, the, The group has rejected the only answer for sin. So being a part of the majority, being a having a title as being a part of a group doesn't mean you're okay. Now that's the subject about the Jews, but I wonder how does that relate to us today in the church, either as a whole or as individuals? You know, I wonder how many churches today believe they're a church because there's a sign out front that has the title church in it. Does that make them a true church? Does that make them a part of the real church? Can, can you be a part of the real church and not teach the authority of God's word? And that our lives are to conform to it, not the word conform to our lives or our culture. And yet, how many churches out there are doing that today? Can you be a part of the, can can the church be a true church if it doesn't preach the gospel anymore? Because it wants to be tolerant. It wants to be accepting. It wants to be a respecter of all faiths and all people. There are whole denominations whose theology has become a respecter of all beliefs. But that is, in effect, a rejection of the exclusivity of the Messiah. For the Messiah said, I am the only way to God. So in accepting all, they reject the Messiah no differently than the Jews. That can't be a true church. Now, you know what? We can get kind of excited. Boy, that's right. If they don't preach God's word, they don't preach the gospel, they're not the true church. But you know, then there's some on maybe what we would call our side. Oh, they preach the truth all right. And they hate every ungodly sinner in their path. Can you hate and be the true church? Can you scorn and look down and be the true church? No, that's not true either. Or what about an individual? Cannot an individual today, just like the Jew back then, say, well, now now wait a minute, I was was born to Christian parents, born in a, you know, we call a Christian nation. 
I was born into the church, always been a part of the church. Does that mean I'm a true follower of Christ? No, absolutely not. Folks, just like for that remnant chosen by grace, it meant acknowledging the Messiah, the one true Christ. For us today, it's acknowledging that that one true Christ, the Messiah, genuinely, faithfully following after him. So, So Paul makes it clear, God's not done with the Jews God's always got a minority. Remember, from Elijah's eyes, he couldn't tell. He couldn't see it. But God said, no, no, I got it. There are 7,000 that are following me. And that's true for us today. We may look around and feel like, boy, there's nobody preaching the word. There's nobody living the gospel. There's nobody. I would imagine some of you feel that way at work. You feel that way at school. And God would say, no, no, I've got a group. I've got a remnant pulled together by grace. God's work, God's plan still unfolding. And then Paul goes on to explain in verses 7 to 14, not only does God still have a group in the Jews, but the Jews are under discipline right now. Yeah, I mean, you heard that in that passage. They're, they're, they're not in the group. They're being held outside the group to make them jealous, uh, to, to, to harden them and show them what they've lost. But, but disciplining is not abandoning. God is not rejected. God has not abandoned Israel. They are under discipline. And discipline, folks, is out of love. You know, the Bible differentiates between discipline and punishment. Punishment can be out of anger. Punishment may have no redeeming value other than to even the score and to make things right. Punishment can be destructive. Discipline is not any of those things. Discipline is constructive. Discipline is driven by love. Discipline is for us. It is for building us. Discipline is very much a part of God's plan. God has a plan. God's working the plan with the Jews. And right now, they're in discipline. There is a hardening, but the hardening will be lifted. The jealousy will hit its target. And Israel will turn and be saved. And so that kind of puts Paul's exclamation point. We could be done there. But before he ends this, all of a sudden, Paul turns and looks at all of us Gentiles. All of us non-Jews. And he says, I want to talk for a moment about your attitude toward the Jews. Now, you know, in our place in history, in our culture right now, that wouldn't seem to be a real big issue. I mean, for the most part, we're pretty positive about Israel, about the Jews. I mean, at worst, maybe we're neutral on that. But that's pretty positive there. But that's not been the case down through church history. Down through church history, there's been a lot of debate about whether indeed God is still... Even with passages like this, there are whole theologies, doctrines. God's done with the Jews. God's finished with the Jews. The church is now the true Israel. God's not doing anything more with them or through them or or for them. And and some of it's just been theological debate. Some of it's been anti-Semitism. Some of it's actually resulted in killing Jews. And so there's, there's no wonder that Paul stops and addresses this. And folks, I don't mean to make this trite or silly. You know what Paul's going back to here? He's going back to where we've all been in eighth grade. Man, when you're in the in-group, you really do look down on those outside the group. He calls it arrogance in here. If I would say, Are you, do you struggle with arrogance? I'd imagine a lot of would be very quick. Say, oh, no, 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 I'm not arrogant. But think about it. It really is easy to look down on those outside the group. Those who've been rejected. Those who've not found what we found. Who enjoy what we enjoy. Is that why God loved us? Is that what God saved us to? Think about this, folks. Look again at verse 20. Look down there again at verse 20. True enough, they are horrible. 
True enough, there are some really disgusting people out there. True enough, there are some people that, I mean, they live like animals. They have no values. They have no worth. They're destructive. They're mean. They're destroying society. True enough, that is, that is all absolutely the truth. They were broken off by unbelief. But you, you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant. You know why Paul tells us not to be arrogant? Because it is our nature. Especially when we're in the in group. I mean, we're, we're, in, the, we're in the favored group now. We're, we, we've got the status of being God's children. Of being saved eternally. We've got God's riches. We're on the inside. And Paul says, don't be arrogant about that. Be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either. Therefore, consider God's kindness and severity. Folks, you know what the difference between you and me and those disgusting people out there and those ruining society and those horrible sinners, you know what the difference is between them and us? God's kindness. There is absolutely nothing about you that separates you from them but God's kindness. There's nothing in my character. There's nothing in my work that God said, Oh, Randy's a shoe-in for the inner circle. Randy's a shoe-in for the inner group. And as I arrive at the group, I acknowledge clearly I'm a shoe-in. Clearly I'm a lot better than all those out there. Paul says, you better consider the kindness and the severity of God. You deserve His severity. You got His kindness. Now here's the question, folks. Why did God's love reach down there and pick me up? Why did it put me in this position? I think it's because God needs help pointing out how bad people are. God needs help showing all the people out there that need to be judged and get a little bit of God's lightning on their house. Is that why? You know, a lot of us, we can get, we can get very emotional thinking about God's love. We have a lot of songs dealing with God's love, don't we? Don't we have a lot of worship songs? And we sing, some, I mean, for me, sometimes those are the most, uh, most emotional worship songs we sing. Think about how much God loves us. But as we come in here and we wrap up in the security of God's love and we enjoy the warmth of that, is it so that we can then turn and hate? Then turn and be bitter? Then turn and, 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 and be harsh and show judgment and show severity? Did, did God need help in showing severity? Did He call you and me, hey, you know what, I need some help. Could you carry my severity out to the world? Folks, I just believe with all my heart that God's love means I am now driven to love. The fact that I've been shown mercy means that I must be driven to show mercy. The fact that I've been a recipient of God's kindness and God's patience means that must become my operating principle. For the Jews, yes, the subject of the passage, but not just Jews. Jews, the lost, just people. I'm a complete and total recipient of the kindness and the patience of God. How can I be and show anything less than the, to the world out there? Well, the, but the world needs the judgment of God. Who's going to do that? And you know, I think God's got it. I think God knows how to do that. I suggest that you and I leave that in His hands. And we do what Paul said, be careful of your arrogance. 
You know, folks, we do need to communicate truth. Whether it be to an individual or to a group, there are places, there are times to say, you know what, that's sin. And sin's going to hurt and sin's going to destroy. But boy, Paul says, watch out for your character, your attitude. Watch out for the tone of your voice because so often it can come out sounding like you just think you're better than everybody else. You remember, you remember when the, uh, the mean girls or the in-group or the popular... Remember when they walked down the hallway? Boy, they just had an ambiance about them, didn't they? A little aura. Some of us ducked into the room. Some of us stuck our head in the locker. Some of us sat there and dreamed about being in that group. And they just had a swagger as they came down the hallway, didn't they? Folks, as you and I walk down the hallway, what, what's our ambiance? What, what do people see as you and I walk down the hallway? What's our swagger? You know, as I hear what Paul's saying in Romans 11, I, I, think, I think there's two things. One of them is humility. Should they see our confidence? Should they see how moral and upright and how much better we live than they do? Or should they see our humility? I think there's another thing they should see. They should see our worship. Boy, as Paul comes to the end of chapters 9 through 11, he is, I think he's overwhelmed. I think he's overwhelmed with the truths that he's just presented in these three great chapters. I'll tell you something, 9, 10, and 11, they're not just mountain peaks in Romans. They're mountain peaks in the whole Bible. And, and as Paul surveys what, what we've just looked at, he's just in awe and he's in worship. I think as he surveys the kindness and the severity of God and how perfectly, how justly God applies that to each man and to mankind, I think he's just in awe. And look how he finishes in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, how untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who's ever first given to him so that God has to repay? For from him and through him and to him are all things. You know how you can read that phrase, folks? Look at that again. You can read it like this. I came from God. My life is sustained through God, and I will return and give an account to God. To God be the glory. What's our ambiance? What's our swagger? It's humility. It is humility, but for the grace of God, I'm no different than everybody out there living in filth that deserves His severity. It's worship. It's not seeing the greatness of me. It's not seeing the greatness of the group I'm in. It's seeing the greatness of that incomparable God that was just sung about. Folks, 9 through 11 teaches us very clearly. I really struggle with why Christians have a theological debate about this. The church is not Israel. Israel is Israel. God has a plan for Israel. They rejected the Messiah. They rejected the group. They're now under discipline. They are now on the outside. But that day will come to an end. The hardness will be lifted. They will receive. It says all Israel will be saved. They will receive their Messiah. Jesus will return and he will reign physically and visibly on the throne in Jerusalem. And Israel will serve under the king of kings in the nation of all nations. The world will be flooded with the knowledge of God. Sin and its curses will be abated. The devil and his demons will be bound. And that promise, those promises are a fulfillment that God made not to you and me. Not to the church. Those are God's fulfillment of promises 
to Israel. Until that time comes, you and I, we join God's plan humbly in the inner circle to live out His plan for His glory. You know, we think a lot about when that day will come, don't we? It gave us a little clue in this passage. You heard it twice. Remember verse 25? The full number of Gentiles. Did you know there is actually, there is a specific exact number of Gentiles that will be saved. I have no idea what that number will be. The, the, the scripture gives us no idea what that number will be. We do know that number's being, been being added to for now for over two, almost 2,000 years, right? I don't know what that let, Let's say that number is, uh, and I'll, I'm just making this up, 1 billion, 763 million, 987,112. That's how many believers there have been since, that, since Jesus rose into heaven. I think today... Man, this world woke up to the Lord's day and many went to his house. Certainly in that, every Sunday, unbelievers go to God's house. And maybe some of them heard the gospel and all of a sudden it became 113. In Romania, 114. In China, 115. In Utah, 116. In California, 117. In, in Virginia, 118, 119. Folks, think about it. Every time somebody's coming to Christ, that number's being added to. That number has an end. That number has, that word fullness means there is a complete, there is a last number. And when that number happens, I believe it's at that exact second that the church will be raptured into the sky. That the tribulation will begin. That means God will, His plan for the Gentiles will be finished and He will now turn fully His attention back to Israel. That will culminate at the end of the tribulation with the second coming of Christ and then the delivery of the millennial kingdom. And it's all based on that last Gentile that prays to receive Christ. Think of that today. You know, when you hear that, when you think there's an exact number out there. Now, I don't know if that number's 2,000 years away, 2,000 days away, 2,000 people away, 2,000 seconds away. But every time somebody responds, we get a little closer, don't we? You know, to know that, you can't help but ask, am I a part of that number? What if that number is completed today? God has chosen a number. Have you chosen to be a part of that number? You know, as we conclude our service in just a moment, we're going to stand and sing like we do every Sunday. And in that time, we make pastors down here available at the front and we give you an opportunity to respond to an invitation. You know what the invitation is? Do you want to be a part of God's number? Do you want to be one of those that is inside of His circle? He's chosen but by His grace, you can make a choice. Are you a part of that number? Boy, there's no reason to leave here with any insecurities about that. I encourage you to take a step of faith. Jesus says, don't be ashamed. Don't, you think people inside the in-group are ever ashamed to be in? No, man, we boast about that. Jesus says, don't be ashamed to be in my in-group. Take a stand. Show that you belong to me. That's why we encourage you to take a step of faith. Come forward in front of this family. Tell one of these pastors, man, I want to be in God's number. I, I want to be in that inner group. Let us pray with you, talk with you just a moment about how that can happen. Maybe you're already a part of God's number, but you're not connected to a church right now. You know, folks, we follow Christ in community. We follow Christ together in relationship. God wants us not just to be on a church role, but to be actively, dynamically, vitally connected to His people, serving Him and following Him 
together. If you believe that God's leading you to be a member of Colonial Heights Baptist, this time is for you also. Just tell one of these pastors, I want to be a member here. We'll help you with that decision also.